0: Matt Boudreau.
1: Thanks, Jockey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 473. You're listening to. My guest today is Grammy Winning Mixer and Engineer based out of Los Angeles. I'm talking about David Rideau, who's worked with Janet Jackson, Marcus Miller, Earth, Wind and Fire, George Benson, and many, many others. We have a great conversation ahead. Very much looking forward to you hearing that conversation. David Rideau, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the new year ahead. Happy new year. I actually haven't had a chance to say that to any of you. We you know, we had our last episode with Leslie Ann Jones, the part two interview with Leslie, uh, WCA number 472. And I just kind of glossed over that whole happy new year thing. So this is me saying happy new year to you and saying, let's examine the new year. Let me share with you some of my goals for this new year and tell you about some things. First off, a couple of great milestones that are coming up here in 2024. We're gonna be hitting the 500th episode of Working Class Audio, believe it or not. Yeah, so that's coming up. We're also gonna be hitting the 10-year anniversary of Working Class Audio. That's gonna happen around, I think that's September, mid-September-ish. I'll have to verify that. But yeah, 10 years, 500 episodes. It's been a great run. Going to continue going. Thank you for uh, being there with me this last 10 years, and we'll uh, we'll keep going. But we'll 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 officially celebrate in in that September timeframe. So that's exciting. Um, so here's what's on tap for me beyond that celebration. There's a guy named Dan Butner. Dan is a National Geographic fellow, and he has kind of. Uh, put his focus of his career in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years on studying blue zones. You might've heard about this. The blue zones are places around the planet where people live to be at least 100. So what Dan has done is is he's done a Netflix series, which I'm gonna put a link in the show notes and I strongly suggest, emphasis on strongly, that you go check it out. Take some time, watch it. Dan goes around to these different places around the world studies these populations that live to be a hundred and beyond and he looks at the common denominators amongst them uh their diets their social circles their uh their health routines you know exercise routines just everything about them and it's greatly inspired me in so many ways i uh was able to pick up a a great cookbook uh for christmas about the food that a lot of these folks eat in these different areas so gonna Put a big emphasis on, on what I'm eating this year and uh, see how that changes things. There's also a great masterclass series, which I'll also post a link to, on the gut biome. So it talks a lot about the ecosystem. You know, we've talked about ecosystems in audio. Well, this is about the ecosystem in your digestive tract and how it affects everything. So, yeah, the, the whole blue zone thing and the gut biome thing and is really got me fixated on eating really well. So that's a major focus of what I'm going to be doing this year. Sleeping more, uh, very important. You know, I feel that I do my best audio work when I get a lot of sleep. So, I'm going to be putting a big focus on making sure that I go to bed at a at a decent hour and get up at a decent hour. Nam is going to challenge that, of course, but you know, there's going to be bumps in the road naturally. But regardless, getting some good sleep in is going to be important. More exercise, getting out of the chair here in the mix room, right? getting out, walking more, you know, I'm not doing any crazy exercise routines or anything. I just walk. And uh, you'll notice if you watch uh, Dan's Blue Zone thing on Netflix, a lot of these people aren't going to the gym or doing anything crazy uh, in terms of like, you know, weightlifting and all that. They just really do things kind of a little more uh, old fashioned and they utilize their everyday routines to exercise their bodies. So hoping to do that. Yeah, there it is. It's uh, it's eating well, it's sleeping well, it's getting some exercise and also major emphasis on learning more. I'm about to be in my mid-50s here. I'm going to turn 55 this year and I've been at the game of audio uh since around 93 94 you know obviously got a little bit later start than some because i was busy trying to be a rock star drummer that clearly didn't work out we've talked about that but the world of audio holds my attention and that passion never stops so uh, the learning part i think is key you know keep learning in spite of experience uh, keep uh, pressing forward keep learning new ideas uh, embracing Uh, New ideas, new technologies, new ways of doing things and not being stuck in, you know, that's how we always did it. I hate that shit. You know I do. I talk about that all the time. But yeah, moving forward with ideas and applying them uh, in my mixing practice. Also, this year, big emphasis on, you know, continuing to mix and Atmos, advocate for Atmos, uh, stereo mixing as well. But just really pushing forward with more mixing, working more, networking more, really just kind of a, a, a big uh, hug, if you will, around my world of audio, just embracing that even more and, um, and continuing to place a great importance on it because it means so much to me. And um, yeah, that's it. So it's really all about eating well, sleeping well, exercising and uh, putting the, the, the time and effort into my audio practice that I think that it needs because it means a lot to me and continuing to do what I do here at the podcast, because I know that that means a lot to you. I still get a lot out of it. I still learn a ton from it, and I know that you all do too. And I just want to say thank you, uh, as I occasionally do and should say it more, thank you for being here, and thank you for listening. Appreciate the time and effort you put in over this last almost 10 years to this show. Happy New Year to you. Hope you have great health, great success in your audio careers. And uh, if you have some ideas... Hey, could you email me? That would be appreciated. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. If you've got your own plans for this year, I want to know what they are. And I want to know if I can cherry pick and steal some of those ideas and uh, apply them to my own life and share them with others. So that's it. Happy New Year to you all. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. David Rideau here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Pleasure to have you here. I feel a kinship with you because our our last names both end in EAU. There it is, man. It's Louisiana connection. That's right, that's right. (laughs) So I have to ask, where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. But my dad and his family came from Louisiana. They moved to Arizona, I guess, in the, the late 30s, I guess that would have
1: been. Very different from Louisiana.
0: Yes. Some of us, uh, there were, I guess, like seven brothers, and two or three stopped in Phoenix. They, th- they said, let's give this a try. And the other brothers continued to LA and opened up a garage. Mm. So it's yeah, it's a fun history.
1: That's funny, because my family history, of course, goes to Louisiana, but I grew up in New Mexico, so... Uh, hey, double connection already, man. We have the Louisiana connection and the Southwest connection, so... Growing up, did music play a major part of your world? Were you in school band, or did you play an instrument, or were your parents musically inclined?
0: I had... A pretty crazy origin story in that respect, I'd say, because my mom always played the organ and there was always an organ in the house. And I actually at one point did take organ lessons, but that definitely did not stick. But I think one of my major influences, my dad was probably the original audiophile. (laughs) I mean, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but he built, together with my oldest brother a Heath kit integrated amp and actually built his own speakers and cabinet and mounted them like high on the wall in our family room. I don't know if that was instinctive or he did the research or, or how it all happened, but part of our normal routine when we got back from church on Sunday was he'd start just spinning vinyl and we would just do our thing and that was always in the background. And so I don't know if it was osmosis or... However, it happened. And then my second oldest brother started doing live sound for this local band in Phoenix. And so I would hang out with them in high school and be like the bottom of the roadie chain and just help them drag their keyboards around and stuff. So I was attacked from a couple of different angles and I played guitar, but early on, I figured that is not going to happen. And then I, I went to college. Thinking, yeah, I'll find something to do and Hmm. went to ASU for two years, just taking weird stuff. I think my major was social psych, which turns out probably really helped me in the end. I was going to say. (laughs) Dealing with musicians, but I was just taking everything not towards my major, you know, music 101, acoustics, all kinds of weird courses. And just by chance, I ended up taking this one class. On synthesizer programming hmm. and they had an arp 2500 you know the big dude up against the wall wendy carlos style and you know with the patch cords and everything but in the corner was a one inch scully machine that we used to turn in our final with you had to create a piece and record it on the scully and once i got my hands on that i said okay wait a minute this is this is something I think I could do forever, and I just dropped out of school and moved to L.A. My parents were thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: never should have let him go to ASU. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, just stepping back a bit, uh, your mom in Oregon, did she play organ in church? She did
0: not. She did not. It was just for her own fun and amusement, and her side of the family was ridiculously musical. Her brother Hmm. was a a pro singer who toured with bands that actually, I think he was on like the Joey Bishop show and he was kind of making it. And her younger sister was in touring Broadway shows as a singer. And so there was, on that side of the family, there was just nothing but music. Everybody on that side of the family plays something, sings. They were serious musicians. And our side, mm. you know, my dad was the electrical contractor, so he was more the geek side, let's say. And then my brother, my oldest brother ended up working for the phone company, so he was into wiring and then went to IBM. And then my second brother ended up starting an audio video business which he still has in Phoenix.
1: He kind of went more into the video world. That's kind of crazy. Just like yeah, it is the, weird. everybody on the periphery of yeah, what we do. And I'm surprised that you didn't, during the the days of coming home from church and spinning vinyl with your dad, did you ever look at the, the back of the records and go, what is a recording engineer? What is a producer? Or Never. Wow. Never.
0: Not until I was, I would say, in the sixth, seventh grade. Then I started really getting heavy into going to concerts. I mean, I saw Hendrix when I was in the seventh grade with, (laughs) it was pretty crazy. And I I saw a lot of concerts. I mean, one block from our house was the Memorial Coliseum where all the big shows went. And it was really funny because there was a state fair that was always there. My stick was, I have 19 different ways I can sneak into this venue. You know what I mean? I -hmm. mean, I could get on the property because there was just so many, it was a huge, sprawling property, the fairgrounds, and I could just walk in there and just hang out. And then when there was a show outside, for example, during the state fair, Chicago played their first big tour was state fair tours. And they played at the state fair, an early show. And I called all my friends. I said, dude you guys got to get down here and check out this band. They are just crazy. And so I saw them, I think, two or three shows for free. And I, I would see a lot of shows like that where I had no idea who it was. But as time went on, I was a liner freak. By the time I was a freshman, sophomore, I was like studying. But still not necessarily from the engineering side, just from the music side.
1: And isn't it, isn't it I-10 that runs... That is correct. Okay. So you and I are lucky because, so I grew up in a town called Las Cruces, which is close to El Paso. So Mm -hmm. I think from, from like, say Southern California through Arizona, through New Mexico to Texas, I-10 runs the route there.
0: That, that is correct. All the way to Louisiana.
1: So all the touring acts were crisscrossing down in the, in the lower Southwest. So. Right. I think we both were fortunate to have such a uh, an influx of, of music coming through there because I know growing up, Def Leppard playing in El Paso, and then the next night they're in Phoenix. And,
0: and that play. is it. That is it. And I mean, and I saw everybody. I mean, I probably have seen James Brown... Seven times. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw a lot of stuff. I saw a lot of jazz stuff because my dad was into jazz. It was, it was crazy. It was a fun way to get exposure, not really knowing what my future was.
1: Yet it took you going through the act of going from the art to the Scully to really yeah. light, light your brain on fire for the act of recording. Exactly. Do you, obviously, you remember that moment, but. Do you remember shortly what followed your your mindset and what you did it shift your your attention like, oh, I know what I'm gonna do?
0: Oh, definitely. I knew I knew what an engineer was and what they did. But as a career path, I'd never even really thought about it. I thought maybe live sound would be cool. But then at that moment I'd said, Oh no, I'm gonna be a recording engineer. I'm going to LA. That's I I knew that much. That's where all the studios are. That's where it's it's going down, so I just packed packed up my VW and and headed out and I just started scouring you know, REP magazines and all all the magazines of the time, trying to figure out, okay, where, who, how is this going on? And just by chance I found there were no schools, formal schools at that time. Yeah. But there were kind of workshops that would happen sometimes. And I went to this one that actually happened at Capitol and you know, I've never forget walking into the Capitol A and you know, the guys were just showing us how to wrap to cable and stuff. But I met two guys there that I became really good friends with and I tell young people this all the time. They come up to me, so what do you, what's the secret? How do I get started? I find like-minded serious people and hang out with them. That is How I got my start, that's what I tell everyone because in, by yourself in a vacuum, you know, you're kind of limited of what you can do, but as a group, whether one guy's a musician or one's more focused in video or film or whatever it is, as a collective, your odds of success are much better for sure.
1: Yeah. I've said before on my show, I have these rants on my show and I talk about who you hang out with it really can determine your future.
0: Oh, big time. Big time. And by that, once again, it wasn't like written down in stone. That's what I'm going to do. It's just, there were cool people. We would just sit after class and just talk for hours about audio and recording and stuff. And those two guys, in particular, Eduardo Fayad, who got hired by Westlake Audio... Mm. which at the time was primarily a studio design and construction and pro audio company. And they, he and a couple other guys were building the first synchronizer to hook up two 24-track machines. He was was on that end of the spectrum geeky. Oh, wow. And he called me one day out of the blue and said, Dave, come down. Westlake is building their own studio, and they're looking for day laborers. And I said, dude, I'm on my way. So I just came in and I, I talked to Glenn Phoenix and I said, okay, here's the deal, Glenn. And by then I was serious. I had my t 4 track. I was recording anybody who would sit still long enough for them to record. And a good friend from LA had moved out, Kevin Becca, oh, which is another story, you know. And so he just came out to be a guitarist. He was a killer guitarist. He said, I'm going to be a session guy. So we were roommates I get this call. I go down and talk to Glenn on the on the job site, which eventually became Beverly A&B Studios of Westlakes. And I said, okay, here's the situation. I know how to swing a hammer. My dad's an electrical contractor. But when this is built, give me a shot to be an assistant. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, kid, yeah, whatever. And, and so well, it was probably like nine months of construction. And at the end... He had one of the guys take me in. They said, okay, here's the patch bay, patch this. And I, okay, click, 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 click. And they were like, whoa, <laughs> okay, so you're on standby. And I get a call like a week later at two in the morning to relieve an engineer who's been up for 48 hours to take over on a session. And that was it. There was no turning back at that point.
1: Do you remember what that session
0: was? I can tell you it was car wash, not the song, but the session for that movie. And wow. it was like 19 musicians crammed into Studio A just playing all at the same time. And I'm like, what, how, where? I looked at the patch, they totally filled. And I'm like, okay,
1: here we go. <laughs> We're off. Wow. Kevin Becca was on the show several years ago. And oh, wow. I, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that show. Of course, he passed away yeah, I can't even remember. It's been it's,
0: it's been I think we were coming to year 3. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. And he was, man, I mean, here's how tight we were. He was best man for me at my wedding. Oh. And I, and my my wife and I were his wedding party when he got married in Italy. It was just the four of us, Helen and Kevin and and my wife Amy. We flew to to Italy to Tuscany and we were his people at his wedding. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've known him since I was a sophomore in high school. We were best buds.
1: Well, for the audience, like I say, link will be in the show notes. You got to check that interview out with Kevin. So there you are at this session. And were you not overwhelmed at the, I mean, you had a four track, but that combination of 19 plus musicians patch base full? Like, Did you have an understanding of signal flow and and session protocol at that time? At that time,
0: definitely I knew signal flow. I knew how to get from the the microphone to the tape machine. All the outboard and everything, I, of course, didn't know well. But I knew enough to ask the right questions. And once again, if I wasn't 100% sure, there was Studio B next door where I could just run over and say, "Like, hey, dude, this guy just asked me to do a molt and put together with another molt. And I'm like, can I do that? And so there was moments like that where I was, I would definitely, I wouldn't say over my head, but I just didn't want to screw up the session, basically. Mm. And the good news was, even though the patch bay was full, the session was going. It wasn't like I, I had to start from the beginning, and so I just had to keep the boat afloat, so to speak. And I knew that I, I just had to, they couldn't go for another 24 hours. <laughs> so I just had to hang in for like another four or six hours until everybody crashed. And that, those were the golden years of recording because, for example, at Westlake, we'd have a tracking session in, in the morning with like the Toto musicians, you know, not Toto, but those guys, those guys, you know, yeah. and yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon, we'd have... A horn session, and and then in the evening, we'd have a string session, and it was just like, tear up, tear down, tear down. It was a factory. We were cranking, man. So as far as learning, and then the engineers I was working under at the time, I mean, one of my main guys I assisted at the time was Bruce Swedeen. Mm. So I mean, and also the guys I was working with, Eric Zobler, Ed Cherney, it was a breeding ground for greatness with as far as the cats you were working with, man, and musicians, Quincy Producing, if you don't learn something from those sessions, you're just a freaking idiot. Wow. Yeah, I just lucked
1: out. Man. What a great way to to land. Yeah. I always ask this because when you come from other places in the United States and you come to Los Angeles for the first time, it can be culturally a little eye-opening on, on many oh, fronts. Oh, big time. So how was that for you? That was... It,
0: it was a weird combination because... I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I didn't go to a lot of fancy restaurants. So the first time we're at a session and I was really in the bubble. I mean, we were working minimum 80 hour weeks. Mm. And so it was studio, studio, studio. I remember sleeping under the piano sometimes. That was the life. But then all of a sudden a client say, okay, we're going out to lunch and we're going to have French food. And I go, okay, we're going on and have fridge food. So I'd be at a restaurant I could never, ever, ever afford, but have a cool experience and just see how guys on that level go through the world. I was like, okay, these these guys are high rollers. And then, you know, hmm. I, I had a lot of good experience as far as travel with my parents. They loved to just drive around and I had been all over the U.S. and A lot in the East Coast, and my mother's family was from Chicago. So, you know, I've been in big cities and hung out in big cities, but just not able to roll on that level, you know what I mean, and just hang out with those cats. It was fun.
1: Did you have a sense of, I got to, like, just sit back and observe, or were you verbally engaged? Was it kind of a keep-your-mouth-shut-kid kind of situation?
0: The gig is this sit in the corner by the patch bay keep an eye that you're not going to ru- run out of tape that was generally the gig but depending who the client was some just loved to engage if you're just working with one on one with an engineer and like Bruce is a perfect example I mean we became Bruce and B they would have me come out to their house and have lunch and you know became really good friends and there are some people you could just see just didn't want to engage at all and some some engineers were just weird at that time too they would just put little pieces of tape on the outboard so you couldn't see the settings. And I was like, hey, dude, whatever. (laughs) You know, you do you. But for the most part, it was, number one, do your job. And then if you're doing your gig, chances of positive engagement increase for sure. If something goes bad, it can really go bad quickly, of course. And especially if they're looking for someone to blame it on. And those times were crazy, man. There were... You to say a lot of people doing drugs and a lot of sessions that just went on endlessly and it was some crazy stuff going on so just being that one level head in the room was it was an asset for sure that's where the social psych training came in
1: (laughs) yeah yeah for sure well so i'm curious once again back to your mindset were you of a mind that I'm just going to go with the flow and let the gigs come in. Or were you focused at all or strategic about it to try to like plan, like, here's where I want to be and here's how I want to do this? Or did you just kind of let each day arrive? Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, the goal always was to be, I was an assistant engineer, and the goal always was to be a first engineer. That was the dream. I said, I wasn't going to like steal this guy's seat, but I knew eventually I wanted to migrate to that because that was to me like, That's where the fun really starts, and maybe I can actually make a little money. (laughs) At Mm -hmm. that point, I was like making no money. It was crazy. And so I had no plan, certainly, except to just be a sponge and get as much information as I could from everybody I was working with. Once again, I was lucky to work with some great engineers. I mean, Mick Gazowski, one of his first trips to L.A., I ended up working with him. And, you know, he will share till the end of time, and we're still good buds. Roberto Katika and, you know, I was working with all the best guys. So it was like, if you couldn't pick up a couple of tricks, you were just not paying attention.
1: Was there anybody in particular that really you could categorize in the mentor category, somebody that you really gravitated to?
0: Bruce would be one of those I would say Under Your Wing and yeah, Fly, Eagle Fly, I'd say Bruce would have been the closest thing to that, but there were a lot of producers that I would put in that category like George Duke, Mm. Sean Boylan. He was always just great and I still talk to him at least once a year and see how he's doing, especially as far as how a session should be run Mm -hmm. and who's in charge, the hierarchy. Even though you're engineering, you're not the guy. You're, you're there to serve the artist and the producer. And so I, I learned how to navigate through those waters with those guys. And when I had questions, they were always willing to share, for sure, beyond the technical, which is really the biggest part of the gig. When someone walks in and puts on their headphones... If they're not hearing what they want to hear and if they're not comfortable about what's going on in the control room you'll never get a good performance ever so you know i learned mm-hmm. that early for sure
1: what were the struggles for you in those those early days in your 20s as far as like survival number one i mean you weren't getting paid all that much so was it difficult to live
0: oh yeah you as and it's so funny it's, i thought i it was bad then luckily As far as food and gas, and you had to have a roommate, which is always the case in L.A., things were a lot cheaper back then, for sure. I mean, you could survive. I'll, I'll never forget, and this will freak out a lot of people. When I was going to ASU, I would be in my VW. I would stop at the gas station on the way, put in 25 cents worth of gas, drive to ASU and back, which it was not far, but not close to my apartment. And I would go to my, uh, I had a bunch of gigs after just working. And I would do that for the week. And at the end of the week, I'd have extra gas for the weekend in my car. That's how, that's all. <laughs> that puts things in perspective, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and as far as food and, and just living, I mean, I didn't. Nothing. I didn't have a TV for ten years. So as far as extra things you would spend money on, that was not a thing with me at all.
1: Yeah, and TVs back then were crazy expensive.
0: Yeah, they were. They were. But there was no time to watch TV. If there was any extra time, it was we were going to go catch a concert or hang out with my buds and have beers and talk about recording. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that, that was pretty much it.
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Chart the path for me of the studios and or the opportunities that took you forward in those those years that followed from that initial car wash session.
0: Yeah, it's all about relationships with other engineers, with producers, with musicians. As far as giving me my first, what I would call shot for recording, George Duke was one of the first ones. He was doing a Flora Parim record. And he let me record some of that record. Boylan, also, John, gave me a shot doing a couple of recordings that he was doing. And then my career took a little bit of a left turn. After I'd been at Westlake maybe two or two and a half years, and I was starting to do more sessions on my own, a buddy of mine, who was also an assistant at Westlake, he was from Denmark. And went back to Denmark and him and his brother had a really nice, one of the top studios in, in Copenhagen mm-hmm. at the time. And he got offered a gig from Sony Records. So his brother had to run the studio by himself and it just was not happening. They were overwhelmed. So he called me one day and said, hey man, could you just come over for a few months and just help us out? We were just getting killed over here. And I said, oh, that sounds like fun. And I was just... Looking for a, an exit, full exit strategy to get out of Westlake. I said this will maybe get me started. So I ended up going over there and staying for like a year and a half. If, wow! Yeah, and it and it was it was freaking awesome because we were cranking, man. I mean, not wow. only was I first engineering, recording all the time. I mean, we were we were cranking. I did a lot of records. It was the best training ground you could ever in all kinds of records, classical records, jazz records direct to two-track records, film. It was a busy studio, and we, we were cranking all the time. And so when I came back from there, I was, like, very confident. And, and luckily, I still kept in contact with a lot of my buddies back here, and they said, okay, you're back. Let's get you to work. At that time, I would say Steve Hodge, who was still a great friend of mine and did all of Jimmy and Terry's, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's, Janet Jackson, all those big hits, he, as soon as I got back, he says, oh, yeah, we'll we'll get you to work. So I, I had my local guys here in L.A., and at that time, Steve had moved with Jimmy and Terry back to Minnesota. So in between working in L.A. with everyone and going to Minnesota maybe a couple of times a year to help them out when they got overwhelmed. Luckily, I, I had work, which is a miracle, really, back then.
1: That Denmark trip, or that stint, I should say, Mm-hmm. That was kind of like, that was almost like grad school for you, wouldn't you say?
0: That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it, it really was because I probably could have done fine here. I mean, all the guys I knew, you know, Eric and all those guys obviously were working on some high quality stuff. But as far as the variety, it was A, a lot of fun and a, a great education for sure.
1: And probably more of a culture shock Going to Denmark than it was going from Phoenix to LA.
0: Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, the funny part is, it's one of those countries where everybody speaks some English for sure. Funny thing is, I I still have friends there who've been there for twenty years and can't speak Danish at all. <laughs> it's just like it's it's one of those. As soon as you try to speak Danish, of course, people can hear this guy doesn't speak Danish and will switch to English. So you could go navigate that world forever, which uh, I know a lot of guys did, but one of my roommates was one of the guys who went to the studio, and the other, one of his best friends was the other roommate who was actually a high school teacher. So we just made a rule that we were only going to speak Danish in the house, and I ended up speaking more Danish than a lot of people I know, that's for sure.
1: Did people look at you different there because you were an American, especially from LA?
0: Oh, uh, most definitely. Most definitely. And that was... It was an asset, I would say, especially with musicians. In the musician world, it's a small world. I mean, everybody's (laughs) looking at the same liner notes, everyone listening to the same records, everyone's trying to make their snare sound like that. You know what I mean? So it was the exact same thing over there. Except the fun part over there, there were a lot of records made there that could never, ever get made here because of state support. Mm -hmm. We did some weird records, man. If you went to the state and said, "Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to do Mingus and i'm going to I'm going to use a classical quintet and I wanted to have five guys playing instruments they'd made by hand. And you could get maybe fifty percent, sixty percent of your budget from the state and then go to a record company and say, "Okay." Let's do a partnership. And they'd say, oh, what, what do we have to lose? And so we would do some really outside stuff, which was a lot of fun and challenging. So wow. that, that, that would never happen here.
1: I didn't, I didn't realize that music received or the arts received state support there.
0: Oh, big time, big time. I mean, because, I mean, Denmark Radio, for a long time, they were the only gang, game in town. There was like two channels on television and four channels on the radio, and they were all Denmark radio. Now, of course, it's changed with streaming and everything. But the good news and the bad news was they poured a lot of money into it. They had their own ballet. They had their own jazz big band. They had their own orchestra. And they were recording and broadcasting all the time. And it's funny, my good friend, nils Lund, who was one of the brothers who owned it. He now works for them. And they have since built a billion-dollar facility where all the studios and all the broadcast and the concert hall are all in on this one big campus. And it is crazy. I mean, it, it's freaking awesome.
1: And, you know, it's it's like almost like an athlete. With you being there and working on such crazy records and instrumentation in different scenarios, it really works those, we'll call them audio muscles, I guess, in Mm. in such a way that you can come to Los Angeles and get on, on the normal track of things and probably just do it with ease.
0: Oh, yeah. There was some adjustment because the commercial aspect, of course, where now we're, instead of walking into a room with a string section or something and just taking your time and making it sound great... I would be babysitting a vocalist and punching in for hours to get a perfect manufactured performance, which is a different set of skills. You're doing the same thing, but the focus is a little bit different. You know what I mean? It's like, we're here to, to make records quickly and that sound in a very specific, you know, as far as what the end product's going to be, as far as a comped perfect vocal mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Once you came back, you talked about going out to, I think you said it was Minneapolis for, for Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. But that was not full-time. That was... Yeah,
1: yeah that was part-time, right?
0: Yeah, that was when I was the uh, put-out-the-fire guy. Because they got to the point where they became so popular, obviously, where they'd be working on five records at the same time. And <laughs> Steve would just call and say, you know, break the glass, call Dave. And I'd just go hang out for two weeks to six weeks and help to catch up.
1: What was your takeaway from those guys from from Jam and Lewis?
0: Oh man. They they are a just great human beings. And and you can hear that come to the music. I mean, it's just the feeling I get hanging out with them is the same feeling I get when I listen to the SOS band. It's just a good feeling. It's a good feeling and there is genuine individuals and it, it's a perfect thing. I mean they're still they still work together. Two guys, they've been working together for that long, longer than any other relationship they've had. And they just still love each other, respect each other. And there's so many stories I could tell you about their ear. A good one would be because Steve had his room over there. They had a complex, really nice complex built by Westlake Audio. And the room that I always mixed in and, and the room that Steve always mixed in were kind of on opposite sides of the building. And so I would get in my room, I'd set up, they'd give me as much time as I needed to mix a song and I'd work it and get it to where I thought it sounded great. And, and they were traveling a lot and busy, obviously. There was four rooms in the complex. So I'd be working on a song, oh man, this sounds freaking awesome. And then I hear Terry coming down the hall and he'd literally just walk by the my open door and just stick in his head and say, turn down that one cowbell and just keep walking. And then I just like, listen, I say, that cowbell is freaking loud. It's not like breaking the rules loud, but turning it down is definitely what what I should have figured out yesterday. Right. just just instantly like, boom. It's a different set of skills, man, when you're producing on that level. It's like, those guys are great.
1: So after that that period of time, and, I, and I'm still like, you know, kind of fixated here, post-Denmark, mm-hmm. what was your path in your, your years to come? I mean, I know you were going to Minneapolis for Jam & Lewis, but were you focusing yourself or centering yourself, so to speak, around a studio or a producer, or were you just all over the map? I was
0: literally all over the map. It was a varied... Uh, <laughs> combination of stuff I was working on to say the least. I mean, I, for example, I was doing some work with Giorgio Moroder and Brian Reeves, that it was his main engineer that I get called in to work with him. I worked on the soundtrack for Scarface, for example. So there was that, I was doing a little bit of soundtrack work, I was doing a little bit of commercial work, I was doing a lot of mixing and records, more track specific than project specific, I would say, and a lot of recording, man. Because I'm still right now known that for whatever reason as a tracking guy. Hmm. I mean, like on Tuesday, I was doing uh, tracking with J.R. Robinson at East West for this big Universal Park project. So, I, you know, I'm still kind of known as that guy. I have a, I'm going to be at Henson next week doing the same thing for, uh, Penny project. So it's just that I'm still kind of known as a tracking guy, even mm-hmm. though it doesn't obviously happen every day, the budgets aren't there, but I still do that at least once every six weeks, I'll get called in for tracking. But I can't say any specific pattern. There were maybe producers that I worked with more than others, mm-hmm. but I was, I was all over the place, man. And still to this day, all over the place. <laughs>
1: Did you ever at any time, A, did you want to quit? And B, did you have to supplement with gigs outside of the recording world? Thankfully
0: not. I mean, there was some lean years for sure, but my needs are small, thankfully. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I still drive a Honda Civic hatchback, brand new one. (laughs) So, I mean, me and my wife love to travel. so We try to get to Europe at least once every year or so. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much, I'm not that extravagant at all. I've been, you know, we've been living in the same condo for 25 years. And in this business, overhead has got to be maintained. You know, you have to know, sure, you can make a lot of money in a short amount of time, but you can't expect that to go on forever.
1: Right. Sustaining that.
0: Yeah, so... Thankfully, for the most part, I've learned that I'm not going to lie. There are some times I'm like, "Hey, man, maybe I should <laughs> go back to psychology." <laughs> but, but thankfully, I've always landed on my feet, and for the most part, especially in the last ten years, it has not really been even a thought.
1: Yeah, I I talk about it off and on on the show. The emphasis on keeping your overhead low, mm. you know, as you say, not being extravagant. Mm. I mean, I would rather, as you're doing, you know, put my money into experiences like going to Europe. I love going to Europe and doing that as opposed to buying stuff. Yeah. And and here's another commonality between us. I drive a 2007 Honda CRV. Good choice. (laughs) So, you know, and it's paid for. So that's (laughs) always good. Yeah, there you go. Now, you, like many others, and I don't know when this trend really started to take off, but you have the ability to mix at home, like many others. Was that idea of doing that strange to you in the beginning? Strange would be
0: putting it politely. It, it sounded to me really crazy. Because, I mean, I spent my entire life with tape and large format consoles. That was my Still, still probably the majority of my career at this point. Maybe it's half and half. I don't know. And every time when Pro Tools first came out, I just said, it just sounds terrible to me. I mean, it's just, it just sounds bad. You know, and I wasn't like a hater or anything. I just said, I, I don't want to work on anything that sounds bad. So with each generation of Pro Tools that would come out, I would do this test where I would bring up a rough mix from a two inch on one side of the console. And then I would copy that over to Pro Tools, the same tracks and mirror that rough mix on the other half of the console and group it so I could just go back and forth, click, click, click. And I did that test to some guys who had just made the major investment. You could just see the look on their face like, oh my God, what have I done? So finally, I used to work at Westlake a lot. I mean, off and on a lot, but around... 2004-ish? I was almost there every day. I was working, cranking. And the guys upstairs, the pro department was upstairs, and they said, okay, we got the new Pro Tools HD. We'd like for you to shoot it out. And I said, okay, bring it down. And so I I literally did a test where I made a 192 session, and one of the uh, techs there also played the piano. So I set up the piano and had it go through the converters and come back. At 192, I said, oh, man, this is sounding good. Did a 96 session. I said, oh, man, this sounds, still sounds good. Not identical, but good. Then I opened up a 48 session. I said, this is also not a crime against humanity. I mean, it doesn't sound as good as a live feed, but I'm not running out of the room screaming for the first time. And so at that point, I just bought a rig. <laughs> I just said, oh, man. It's time to make that move, and so I bought a rig. And my main assistant at the time was, I'd say, one of the best Pro Tools operators then and now. Let's put it this way: he does. He's the guy who hits spacebar for the uh, Super Bowl halftime show, for the Oscars. He's he's the Pro Tools guy, mm. and he has now like eight Emmys. <laughs> And so he's the guy who taught me how to do Pro Tools just enough to keep me out of trouble. And then I, so I had a rig that I would carry from studio to studio. You know, I had with all my other mics and crap that I would drag around and outboard gear. And it never would come back home. I'd never thought about it. it would just, when I wasn't working, it would go in, into storage. Mm-hmm. And so one day, a year or two later, someone said, hey, uh, could you just edit this somewhere besides the studio? I said, I probably could do it. And so my buddy Pablo Munguia helped me set up just the bare necessities at home just so I could just sit and edit. And so I did that and just cleaned stuff up. I said, oh, this makes sense. Why sit, pay $150 an hour in the studio when I could just sit here and do it? And then one day someone said, we hate this song on the record. I don't know how it even got on the record. Could you, is there a way you could mix this song at home? I said, well, let me figure it out. And so I, I bought one of the dangerous summing things, probably 00157 or something. It was one of the first ones. And I said, okay, I can, I probably could figure this out. And once again, Pablo McGee came over and we figured out a way to to set up and without tearing my house apart. And so then it started saying, okay, can you do, maybe do two songs. And then they start comparing my mixes at home and the mixes in the studio. And they said, well, why does this one in the studio, I like better, but this one at your house, I like better. And I said, well, it's probably, you know, the arrangement, <laughs> the performance, the you know what I mean? Let me count the ways. And so finally it, it started just trending to where... Guys were like, why am I mixing at the studio? It just trended until finally by, I'd say, 2008-ish, I was done mixing in the studio. Just done. Yeah. I, I was not in the box. I had still had all the same outboard I was using, and I was doing the summing thing, but I was mixing everything at home. And I did that up until me and Andrew had this conversation <laughs> about going in the box. And I'd say it was about five, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. I said, man, I'm, I just can't deal with it anymore. I'm just getting bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball from project to project. I've, I've got to figure out a way to stay in the box. And I did. And it's, you know, obviously it, it works and sounds great now. But we've come a long way. That's for sure.
1: Most definitely. It really, it changes the economic dynamic of the whole thing, of, of how much money you end up keeping and, and the oh, possibilities. Just,
0: look for this way. I mean, a third of the projects I work on, I could not do unless I was mixing in my studio. They are just financially, there's, I, there's no way I could make it work for, for them or for me. I'd just be like, I, I just can't the budget's not there. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. And now in the in the Atmos world, it's even be, becoming even more kind of like, the nav- navigation is even more challenging now, you know, now that that's in the mix, so to speak. Yeah. Because yeah. even though I only do, I'm not like you guys, man. I only do maybe... 25% of my work, maybe 35% in a good quarter is Atmos. Mm-hmm. You know, you still have to find a way to find a budget for that.
1: Yeah, that's that's something I was struggling with in the beginning. I was like, well, okay, I work a lot with indie artists and the mm-hmm. and the choice of, okay, well, this is how much I charge for stereo mix. And they're like, and I have to, if I want to do Atmos, <laughs> I gotta pay you for an Atmos mix. How's that right. going to work long term? That's not sustainable. And I've I've talked about it. I don't know if you've seen it in in our Atmos message group or anything, but uh, I've been really working hard at basically doing stereo and Atmos mixes out of the same mix simultaneously.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I applaud you, man.
1: <laughs> you know, kind of like what Bob Clearmountain has done for years. Like, you know, he'd be mixing stereo and then he'd be like, oh, and here's the five one.
0: mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That's what I'm working on now. In fact, I'm, I have a mix up that I'm working on today that is like that. And it's, it's changed the way I work. And it's also economically changed a few things. Mm. Positive. It's, and, you know, at some point I got to share it with some people and how I'm doing it because it's working for me. It's working for the artists and, and it's really kind of consolidating the workload.
0: Mm. It's the wild West out there, man. <laughs> it's, it's always been. Yeah. But now with the Atmos thing, it's the budgets and from a really nice budget to no budget and everything in between is on the table right now. And still a lot of people are still feel like they've been burned from the 5.1 experience. And so they're not all on board, but it's, I've tried to find a workflow that works. You know, I I have no speakers here for Atmos. I just have my stereo PMC set up and... Pretty much, I just start on headphones and then graduate to a a space to finish.
1: Do you go over to Lemon Tree to PMC room?
0: I I go to Lemon Tree PMC room, but I always still finish at Just For The Record. Oh, okay. Me me and Matt, because I, A, I cannot afford to hire a mastering guy. I Mm. just, it's just, if I ever find that budget, I'd be happy to do it, but right now it isn't. And the one time I did do it, I was not a hundred percent pleased. You know, it wasn't like it was wrong or anything, but I was like, man. Eh. So pretty much after I go through my normal process, I just go to Just For The Record and hang out with Matt. And he's making sure I hit all the, the stuff that I have to hit as far as levels and stuff. I'm pretty much there, but he tightens it up to just like right on the money. And then I do one final check on their speakers and do any final tweaks. And that is a workflow that I can adjust according to the budget. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I'm very happy with the result of how it sounds in the end. And knock on wood, nothing's been rejected so far. Right. And right. Uh, and the clients are happy. So yeah, I'm really close to finishing this Janet Jackson thing, man. Which is like, <laughs> it's been a mission. It's been a mission. You know? Oh, i that's, bet. That's that's five more podcasts. <laughs> because oh, I'm uh, sure. Oh, my God, because the uh, whole, just, you know, I had to remix everything in stereo. I had to start all over.
1: Oh, gosh.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, joy. <laughs> I don't envy
1: you. Yeah, what I'm working on now, what I've been working on is, like, current stuff. mm mm-hmm. And I initially didn't get any of that catalog work, and I was like, oh, man, I really want to get that work. But then the more I talked to some people, I was like, Maybe I don't want to get that work because there's yeah. so much effort that goes into those stereo remix builds.
0: Yeah, it is, and that is only one piece of the puzzle, man. It's like you have to remember everything was analog. Every stereo mix, every different version of a stereo mix, is running at a different speed. It's just
1: right, and in some close. cases, I've, I've I've heard horror <laughs> stories of. You know, you got all the tracks, you've got it, you've got the mix together, but then you compare it to the version that's out and f- discover along the way that somewhere, somewhere vso maybe in mastering, where they said, oh, just yeah. knock it up a bit just to give it a little more energy or something or whatever.
0: We did that all the time. All the time we did that. And, e- and even if it's not vso the, the speed is not going to be exactly the same unless it's locked that's the only that's the only way it's going to be locked is if it was locked yeah and even in, and that's what really gets crazy because there's with an artist as big as Janet there's so many different versions and so many a and B two inch reels that were never locked together and you can imagine when you're trying to transfer every, digitize everything that getting the correct A and B stuff locked sometimes would not happen. It could be marked, okay, master, this is the master, main album mix, A and B reel, lock them. But for another version I'm doing, of a remix, or even just another edited version, those same reels may not have been locked. And that's where the fun begins, my friend.
1: <laughs> well, and, and I guess you would probably know this better than anybody working on, I mean, on Janet Jackson stuff, or any jam and Lewis stuff. Wasn't there, mm. I've talked to people who have said, oh, yeah, there was a, a sequencer that never made it to the 2-inch. Oh, and yeah. And so I've heard guys talk about, like, oh, I had to recreate the kick drum track or I had to recreate this keyboard track.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the keyboards aren't an issue, but, I mean, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it, too. And and me and, me and Steve Hodge talked about it at the beginning of this project. He's, like, totally done with audio. He's a <laughs> smart guy. And he just, you know, said... Good luck gave me, tried to bless me, give me the sign of the cross. And the thing that kind of saved me is a lot of our setups were very close, but there were moments where we would trigger a snare or a kick and not print for sure. Uh. <laughs> and I can't, we, neither one of us could think of a specific song or moment where that happened, but we could not rule out that, oh, that didn't happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like... Yeah, it was crazy, man. It's crazy, but it's, I'm, I'm really, really close. Cross everything. <laughs> this wow. could be the month. <laughs> oh, that's,
1: that's exciting. That's very exciting. Well, and who would have known back then, right? You know what I mean? Also, the
0: STEM thing. When I was first contacted from the record company, they said, yeah, you know, we, we got all the files and stems ready to go. And I said, uh, dude. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't have stems. He says, no, I'm looking at a folder right now that says stems. I said, dude, you don't have stems. <laughs> I I was there. <laughs> we Stems wasn't even a thing. I mean, we would do a vocal up, vocal down, uh, instrumental, a cappella. There were no other stems made that, that, you know, that we're talking about. And I said, to pick a folder, open it up, and read me what it says. Oh, snare one, snare two, bottom snare high. Yeah, I said, yeah, we have to remix it,
1: man. Yeah. So, and, and you just don't want to hand that off to anybody either. Yeah, I mean, it definitely adds a whole level of complication because not only are you talking about, like, a generational shift at the record companies where you've got people who may or may not even been alive when those records were done. There you you go. They don't know the difference between stems and tracks. And they just assume like, well, of course it was like that. Of course they have stems, but they don't know what was going on when those records were made (laughs) technology-wise.
0: No. And it's not not anyone's fault. And that's so funny. Every presentation that I do now worldwide, I always say the same thing. If you learn one thing today... (laughs) You're going to learn the difference between a STEM and a multi track. Right. If you learn one thing today, that's going to be it, man. And there's guys who've been engineering for years who still don't know the difference. So it's not anyone's fault, but it's a discussion that, because some people just kind of just throw the term around loosely and it's not, no, man, it's a specific thing.
1: Well, we're about out of time. Uh, you mentioned Pablo Muggia, who's also been on the show many years ago. I'll put a link to Pablo's episode. Oh, yeah. Pablito. <laughs> yeah, super nice guy.
0: I'll be back visiting him in, uh, I think that's in May, going back to Berkeley to do a hit with them. Is he in Spain still? He's still in Valencia, yeah. Wow. He's he's at, he's at, the, at Berkeley. He's wow. one of the main cats there now.
1: And then for you... Your website is caneriverstudios.com, correct?
0: That is correct. Louisiana Connection, man.
1: Well, and so, (laughs) isn't Rideau, isn't it Curtin in French?
0: It is, to the amusement of everybody in France when I check into a hotel and (laughs) they hear that I cannot speak. My wife speaks a little French, but it's very, very funny. Dave Curtin. (laughs) In fact, we're going back again in, oh, three weeks. We'll be going back, yeah. I'm going to do a couple of quick hits over there for a couple of Atmos playbacks Mm. for the people.
1: I'll end with this question. Do you ever take a mobile rig with you, like a laptop with all your stuff? (laughs)
0: Oh, no. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Oh, no. No. A hundred times no. Yeah. No. Now, when I go do things like this, it's usually a studio or a show floor where they have everything set up and I just come in with, with my drive and just plug in and play some stuff and confuse the kids and leave the room.
1: Yeah. Is that like a a live work balance kind of thing? Or is that just like a, I don't want to mess with it kind of thing? I just don't, you
0: know, I bought a laptop about 15 years ago and I spent a lot of money and it never left the end of my desk. And then when it did, it was like, man, I mean, come on! How much more work can I do? <laughs> you know, I, I put in a lot of hours. Right. So when I those few times on a plane or something, I'd rather just be napping or talking to my wife or <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know, or I do do a lot of work with my phone. Don't get me wrong; I'm still in contact with the world as far as those kinds of things and texting and emails and I still can probably send files if I have to. Or yeah. yeah hook somebody to a, a Dropbox link. But as far as production, man,
1: come on. Yeah, take a break. <laughs> you, gotta <laughs> you, you gotta live. You gotta live. Well, I'll have to have you back, David. It was great talking to you. For the audience, as I mentioned, all the links will be there for you to check out. Yeah, thank you again. Good to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure, will you be at Nam? I will definitely. I My Nam
0: dream every year is to get there before opening on Thursday Mm -hmm. and leave at the end of Thursday and never have to come back unless (laughs) I've got a hit. Right, right. Because that weekend thing, man, I just, it's rough. (laughs) It's rough. Especially, I mean, you know, if I'm going to be doing something specific, you know, I'll get a room and stay out there. But usually I try to get in and out like the wind. To, yeah, to see the people I need to see. And I always going to run into a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's, it is fun. It's a fun Thursday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and usually a very good lunch. And the party at the PMC booth at the end is uh-huh. at the end of Thursday. And then home I go. <laughs>
1: well, if I run into you, great. If I don't, I'll see you at another time. But that's it. But thank you again. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, man. Thank you. So it's fun and educational.
1: All right. Well, you take care. David Rideau here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. As usual, if you wouldn't mind, head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review to let everybody know that you do enjoy the show. That would be greatly appreciated. That's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith there greeting you at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, or feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work life balance, health and hearing loss.